I want to say a uh, special thank you to everybody. And I know Jen, Joe mentioned this earlier, but uh, thank you to everyone who came out last night and uh, served with us as we serve our town. Um, it was a great night, and I, I think Laura and I, if we're suddenly doing this with our hands during the sermon, we're, we're painting fireworks. Um, it's just become it's just become automatic now, I think. Uh, we painted so many fireworks on kiddos, but we had a great time, and it was a great opportunity for um, our churches to be very visible in our community. We want to make sure we take those times, but thank you to everyone, and um, we do want to say thank you to everyone who has served um, our country, whether that be military service, um, firefighters, policemen, um, all, our, all our emergency workers, EMTs, and thank you for all that you do. We do appreciate you very, very dearly. But this morning, we're going to gather around God's Word, and, and I will just be candid. As I got into this this week, it seemed, um, it didn't seem very timely, the passage we're going to be in. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. And I, I just kind of wondered, all right, so how do you, where do you go with 4th of July? It's, it's a celebratory weekend for us, and this is, this is a fairly somber passage. Um, as the week went on, it became more and more clear to me that this actually is a great passage for us as a church here on this day as, as we think um, of all the celebrations we have, and what an amazing country we are privileged to be a part of, where we do have freedom, we have independence, um, we have opportunities to work, we have opportunities for education. Um, we, I think of so many countries in the world where my daughter wouldn't get to go to school um, because of her gender, or um, my son could be kidnapped um, to serve in a military force. We are so privileged. Um, but we also look, and as Christians, we need to be reflective and be salt and light and look that there are problems with our American system too. And I think this passage hits right at the heart of some of those problems. And it's this mindset that I think every single human has. That we want to be happy and comfortable and have ease. Just kind of the eternal vacation. Um, we're getting ready to go on vacation next week and please don't hear me knocking vacation. I am all for it. Trust me, uh, you, you call me, not this week, but the week after, I'm not answering. Um, but vacation is good. But I think some of us, the dream life would be eternal vacation, right? I mean, it's just to live on the beach or the mountains or, or you know, commute between the two. That's, that's my goal right there. And sometimes we forget that we are here for something so much bigger and so much better. than just eternal bliss that doesn't have any deeper significance and meaning. And today, as we read Jesus' words, he, he kind of confronts this, sometimes uh, what has almost become an American attitude that, that we deserve it. Um, and that's not something that's healthy, that has risen up in our country and hasn't always been there. But today, we're going to read Jesus' words. This is a sermon that Jesus preached. And, and you'll note, if, if you were paying attention there, you saw that both of our readings today were out of the book of Matthew. Um, we have two entire sermons that Jesus preached. And um, they are very, very different, although at first they can kind of sound very similar. Um, you saw Valerie or heard Valerie read the Beatitudes out of Matthew. And this, this is the beginning of his sermon 
Um, that's one of the first things he does in his career as a minister, as a pre- preacher of God's Word. He goes up on a mountain, he finds a bunch of folks, and it's a huge crowd, and he preaches to them. And he talks, and the thrust of that sermon is you cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. God gives you His favor by grace and love and kindness. It doesn't matter how good you are, you're not good enough. That's not the complete thrust, although that's very true and very present in the sermon we're going to read today from Jesus. This is not the Sermon on the Mountain. This is actually the Sermon on the Plain, it's usually called, and that's not some crazy guy on you know, a 747. It's the Sermon on a very flat area. He was out in the fields. This was a farm country. And he went out, and there was a big crowd, and he preached to them. And you will see that the thrust of this sermon starts with telling the disciples that they're to live in a very, very different way from everyone around them. Um, there was a British preacher that, um, and of course the British, you know, they've they got to say something creative. It, it says that Jesus presents a kingdom topsy-turvy. So he presents a kingdom. He presents a nation. His, his kingdom, the eternal kingdom, but it's topsy-turvy. Um, another American author put it a little more like we'd say it. He, he presents a kingdom upside down where the servants are the greatest where the humble are exalted. He presents a kingdom where the lowly, the meek, and the persecuted, the people that others don't like, are oftentimes those that are the greatest in the kingdom. And so today we're going to read the first of Jesus' sermon on the plain. We're going to break this up into about four sections. Um, I know Joe may tweak that just a little as we go through. So three or four weeks, we're almost going to have kind of a mini-series on this sermon that Jesus preaches. And we're going to see some themes that you've heard before that are, that are you know, pretty common we think of, such as love your enemies. Um, he talks about blessed are those who do this and, and woe to those who do this. But this is not the more common passage that people read when we think of Jesus' sermon. So I want you to track with me. And we'll see, it's, it's a kingdom topsy-turvy. It's a kingdom upside down. But more precisely, as Jesus himself When he was asked just before, it was during his trial, just before his death, the the governor asked him, are you a king? Are you the king? And Jesus replies to him. He he doesn't actually answer the question directly. He implies he's a king. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, when you are a part of Christ's kingdom, the things of this world, the stuff, the houses, the cars, the money, the fame, That's not what you're after. So I want us to read this together. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6. We're starting in verse number 12. And you're going to see this starts with Jesus singling out uh, some of his disciples. And then he goes into this sermon. So Luke chapter 6, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of the ones that's in the seat pockets there in front of you. Um, It does have a table of contents right in the very beginning if you need help finding Luke. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood in a level place. This is the plain we're talking about. 
with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of these their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. <clears throat> and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray together, and we're going to talk about this passage for just a few minutes. Father, Lord, speak to us, please. We do thank you for the blessings and the good, good things about this amazing place in which we live. Lord, there are many freedoms, there are many privileges. But Father, we, we want to be open and candid and honest to say that it is these blessings, these privileges, um, have often allowed us to put ourselves at the center of life and forget you, forget others. Father, forgive us when we do that. Lord, I pray for um, this day, Lord, that we would see your kingdom. Um, Father, as you, you taught us to pray, as we read in Matthew, your kingdom come and your will be done. May your kingdom come above ours. Lord, speak to us and change us. May we come to enjoy and rejoice and find our solitude and our satisfaction in you. Jesus, your name we pray. Amen. So this passage, we're going to uh, kind of walk through in four segments. So the first one is going to be the really long one, and then three short sections after that. So if you're tracking along in your bulletin, there's some blanks to fill in there. The first one is the explanation. We're just going to talk about what does this passage actually mean, and we're going to have three implications from that, three kind of applications, three things of, of what does this, I know what it means, so what do I do about that? So first thing we're going to do is just simply talk about what it means. Um, and this can be a little bit of a confusing passage. So in Matthew, when he talks about the poor, he says, the poor in spirit. This is a very spiritual conversation. He, he's saying that if you know that you need God more than anything else, you're poor in spirit, you don't have everything spiritually you need, then you're blessed for you'll be satisfied. That's not what he says here. When it says, blessed are the poor, he's talking about people who don't have money. It's very clear in, in the way this is worded. It, it's a different thing than Matthew. And so we're going to talk about what that means. And does this mean that every single one of us you know, need to live in a hut and, and be in poverty? And I think you'll see it doesn't. But I want us to kind of walk through this passage and talk about exactly what's going on here. 
So it starts with Jesus up on a mountain. So Jesus himself, Jesus, God the Son, goes up to a mountain and pray and spend time. He continued all night with his Father. And this is something we see over and over in the pattern of Jesus' life. And what he was preparing for was when he would call his 12 disciples. So I'm going to clarify a couple terms. We throw these out very often, and I want to make sure that we understand what exactly they mean. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. So there we often talk of the 12 disciples, and, and that's accurate. There were 12 men who followed Jesus. And these 12 men that we see listed here are the people who were the closest to Jesus. They were Jesus' kind of inner circle. They were the people he was personally training to continue on with the ministry that he had begun. And these would become the first pastors, and they would be the apostles who would lead the church as a whole. But the word disciple is not confined just to these 12 men. The word disciple means a follower. And these were, this was the pattern all over the world where Jesus had. If you wanted to learn something, and it didn't matter if it was spiritual things or if it was a very practical thing like blacksmithing, you became a disciple, you became a follower of someone. And the reason they chose that word is you literally followed them around. If they went somewhere, you went with them. So if it was a trade that you were learning, if it was construction, you went to the construction site. If it was a, a, a tanner, you went out to get the hides and you came back and you learned the process by actually doing it. And then this process, this discipleship process, this following became applied to people who were learning something spiritually or even academically. So all the spiritual teachers of that day would have disciples. And typically they would have one, two, maybe three and this actually became a very coveted position, and typically you would have to shell out cash to do this. And Jesus turns this on its head. Not only does he not just take one or two, the elite, he takes 12. And this was certainly a sign of something coming. This was, this was a new Israel, a new covenant that was coming, kind of as we talked about today in Bible study with David, that this covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus. He's getting 12 new tribes of Israel. But not only that, he's getting a bunch of guys. It's not just one or two elite. And these aren't the richest, the best, the most, you know, glorious people. And we look at some of these names. If you look down there, Simon, that's who gets listed first. He's a big mouth fisherman. That's who he is. Okay, his brother, Andrew, James and John, all fishermen. Philip, Bartholomew, fisherman. Bartholomew is a very contemplative fisherman. He, he, we find him, when Jesus finds him, he's out sitting under a tree thinking. I mean, he's, he's that guy. He's just kind of thinking around. Um, you see all these guys. Matthew, we talked about him a few weeks ago. That was the last time I preached. He was a tax collector. He was hated. He was a criminal. Um, Thomas, who we know was full of doubt. James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was called the Zealot. Zealot was a political party. This was the guy. They were known for carrying swords. All right. This is the guy who's doing open carry AR when he goes to dinner. I mean, he's, he's kind of the nut job, all right? And Jesus calls this guy as a disciple and puts him with Matthew, the tax collector, who he's fighting against, okay? So this is, this is the equivalent of getting the most liberal Democrat you can find and the most conservative extremist Republican you can find and saying, all right, you guys be buds, all right? And you're going to just hang out for three years and learn from me. This is the crew he is assembling. He's picking them from everywhere. 
And the whole point is he's not picking them for who they are. He is picking them for who they will become when they are in Christ. When he changes everything for them. Judas, who was Iscariot, and another Judas. He even has his traitor who follows him, becomes part of this elite circle. So he gets these 12 guys, and he, Jesus himself spent a night praying over these guys. Jesus, the Son of God who knew everything, still prayed over this for a night. And I just want to get a quick application for us as a church. If you're part of us as a church, we're, we're so glad you're here if you're not. But for church, this is why we take finding our deacons very, very seriously, choosing pastors very, very seriously. If Jesus had to spend all night praying about this, how seriously do we need to take it when we start talking about elders and deacons and pastors? This is a very, very big deal. All right. So he comes down. He's got 12 guys. He's kind of got his inner circle. He also has a bunch of other disciples who are not part of the 12 who are following him. And then a giant crowd assembles. So we've got three groups. So I want you to kind of picture this. Jesus standing there, you know, in the wheat field, corn field. I don't know what they were growing at the time. Barley field. They grew a lot of barley in this area. Jesus is standing there. He's got 12 guys around him. Then he's got a whole bunch of disciples. This is probably in the hundreds. Guys that are following around, paying attention, but not part of that that close crew. And then all these folks start coming out. Thousands probably are coming out to listen to him. They're all healed. He does all these miracles. So everybody at this point is probably in a really good mood. This is the heyday of Jesus' ministry. And all of a sudden, it says in the middle of this, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Now, we don't know if this means the 12 or, or the couple hundred. It probably meant the couple hundred. And he says to them in front of everybody else. So this is very awkward here. Uh, you guys, all you poor folks, all, all you guys who, who, you know, you didn't fit. You were this, the hodgepodge. You were this and that. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be poor. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be all this stuff. Everybody's going to hate you. All those folks out there that are listening, they're, they're going to hate you. And he does it right in front of all those folks out there. So this is, this is a controversial, this is a hard-hitting statement that Jesus starts. This is not a subtle thing. And there are probably people sitting in the crowd going, whoa, 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 whoa. You're talking about me here. And he hits these four things. So, so there's four things in a pair. And so what we're going to do, and, and I think this is how we interpret this text, to do it well. To not say that, that it's spirituality by bank account. If you're really, really poor, then you're really, really spiritual. Or, or some of the people in that day, and I think a lot of us in this day, say, if you're really, 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 oh, you, God must really like you. It's not spirituality by bank account or by role that you're going to go through. It's not spirituality by the clothes you wear, the, the gold that you have spirituality by your relationship with Christ. And I want you to see this. So we're going to pair these four things up. And I want you to look at with me. These first four. Blessed are you when you are who are poor. Let's go to the next one. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you. Excuse me. I skipped one. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. And blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you. They revile you. They spurn your name. On, as evil on account of the Son of Man. So I want you to get that little last phrase there. On account of the Son of Man. 
these 12 men that are sitting or standing, whatever they were doing right in front of Jesus, all but one of them would be executed for their faith in Christ. All those disciples out there, they would make up the first church. By the end, there were 120 of them. That 120 would end up getting drove out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that broke out. People stoning Christians. They were going to have a rough life. These Christians would then spread all over the Mediterranean world, often taking nothing with them but the clothes they had on their back. They would go to a new city. They would get whatever work they could do, and they would start a new church. That's how Christianity spread. was by these men and women giving up absolutely everything. So what did it mean for these disciples sitting right here? It meant that they were going to be poor. They were going to be hungry. They were going to weep at times. People were going to hate them, revile them, push them out. This was life for these disciples. And so what does Jesus say to that that group who would have those kind of four things happen to them? He says, yours is the kingdom of God. You'll be satisfied. You shall laugh in the future. And your reward is great in heaven. And then he says, don't be surprised at this. The very last line of that. For so their fathers did to the prophets. This is nothing new. This has been happening for the entire Bible. That great, huge crowd out there that may seem very enthusiastic. Oh, when Jesus is healing and he's doing all these things. Yeah, he's a good teacher. He's a great man. Jesus is a wise person. You should listen to some of the things Jesus says until they get personal. Until they confront my sin. What Jesus is saying, this kingdom that we're seeking, this kingdom that I'm bringing in, you don't get all the blessings of it right now. You may be poor. People may hate you. You may get fired from your job because you won't tow the party line. You may get fired from your job because you're being honest. You're a person of integrity. You may be hated by your neighbors. You may be thought a fool because you're sitting in here instead of on the lake today. That's okay. Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. This world is not what it's about and and i know most of our crowd in here not everybody but i know most of our crowd i mean we're in nolensville it's an upwardly mobile i mean most folks have jobs most of those jobs are pretty doggone good jobs that's great and i'm going to tell you there were a bunch of rich people in the bible we're gonna, i'm going to go through a list of them That's not what it's about. It's about Christ and His kingdom. And if it's a sacrifice to shell out that cash that you've worked so hard for to get yourself to Iquitos, Peru to love on some boys there who you've never met, that's what we do. If it's giving up your Saturday on a long weekend to go out and throw kids on bounce houses, that's 
That's what we do. If it's sitting over there with the kiddos, like we've got about 12 people doing right now and loving on them, so we can sit and enjoy, that's what we do. We had men and women who gave up their summer vacations to go with our teenagers for both camp, Dominican trip, this week, P2. We've got, uh, what, close to 72, I think it was, total leaders who gave up a week of their life to do vacation Bible school. That's what we do. We have men who get here every Sunday morning, and I mean, they get up early. Bless their hearts, they get up way earlier than I like it. They come, and they make sure this, this place is clean and nice for you. They set up the Lord's Supper this morning. They had a rough day this morning. They had to clean. Our cleaners didn't get it clean this week. I don't know what happened. We'll figure it out so it doesn't happen next week. They were vacuuming, picking up trash. I mean, it was nasty. And these guys did it. And they do it with a smile every single week. They give up their comfort on a constant basis. This is where it comes into people who are struggling with a sin. And they give up that sin. They are hungry. It may not be for food. It might be for alcohol. It might be for drugs. It might be for money. It might be for that career choice that they turn down to go to the international mission field a couple of years. They give up. They're hungry for a while. They might be poor for a while. They might weep and be rejected because of the stands they take. They say, this is all worth it. Because I'm seeking God's kingdom. I'm seeking Christ's satisfaction. I'm seeking His laughter will come from true joy and true peace. And I am seeking a kingdom and a reward in heaven. So I'll give up. But it's paired by four woes. And when we talk about woes, we, we don't use that word very often anymore. Woe in, in this, this area, it, it means like how terrible. It's like, poor, oh my goodness, how bad. It, it, it's a horrible, it's almost, the, well, God bless his soul. Kind of. I mean, it's, it's getting on that. It, it's, oh, how sad. And, and here's who he says we should pity. Listen to this. But woe to you who are rich. There's an old phrase, poor little rich girl. Y'all heard that before? I mean, this is, that's almost exactly word for word what Jesus is saying here. For you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. It goes right with the hungry part. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you. For so their fathers did, the false prophets. It, it's paired up. It, it's, they're not poor, they're rich. They're not full, they're hungry. Jesus' people aren't the ones laughing and getting and partying on a TV show just because they're famous for partying. They're the ones mourning who are struggling. They're not universally popular, as one pastor put it. They're the persecuted. That's what it's like 98% of the time to follow Christ. It's not clean. It's not easy. Jesus doesn't say, save me, and I'm going to fix your bank account. I'm going to fix your job. I'm going to fix this, fix that. He says, I'm going to change you. You get me. You get my kingdom. So I want to be careful that we don't glorify poverty. Um, there's been many spiritual people through the years who have done that. Poverty is not glorious and spiritual just in the sake of poverty. 
But if it's poverty because of Christ's sake, it's all worth it. In the Bible, there were several poor people. They're the folks we know. Ruth and Naomi were beggars. They went out to the fields and all the things that kind of got scattered off. Uh, I was, I, it hit me as I was driving in this morning. That cornfield right there on um, uh, Nolensville Road in Sunset, I think it's probably silage corn. But they have something planted around it. I haven't been able, it's not big enough to tell what it is. And there are all these little corn seeds that's popping up in the middle of that low crop. It may be soybeans or something like that. There's just random corn stalks. That's what Ruth was after. In, in their country, they were allowed to go pick the random stalks that got missed, that that seed just somehow went. That's what she's living on. That is food. That's all she has. She's homeless. And she's living on those random seeds that get thrown out. That's Ruth and Naomi. That's their life. This is the great-grandma of David the king. This is 14 greats back from Jesus. The beggar. Homeless beggar. Elijah never had a home. He, he wandered from place to place. He stayed with widows who were starving because they had more than he did. That's Elijah's life. The famous prophet. Jesus speaks about a widow who gives an offering. And it was about the equivalent of half a cent. He said, that's the kind of offering I want to have. Because she gave out of her heart. She gave out of her need. Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents. There's levels of offerings given based on your income in the Old Testament. So when you have a baby, you are to bring an offering to celebrate that baby. And the gift of God. And the ideal thing is you, is you bring a bull. I mean, you bring a nice, big old fat cow. But if you don't have that, you bring a goat or a sheep. And if you don't have that, and it starts working down, and it gets down to pigeons. And we read in the Bible, you know what they brought when Jesus was born? They were able to afford two pigeons. That was Joseph and Mary. They were poor. But then we read about rich people in the Bible. We read about guys like Abraham, who was probably the richest man on earth at that point. We read about Joseph who was ruling all of Egypt in its heyday. There's no telling how much money he had. The Magi who came and visited Jesus, they, they, they were just shelling out, hey, here's some gold, here's a little present for the baby. They were rich. We read about David, King David, who was shelling out money. He, he couldn't figure out what to spend his money on. Solomon, who's known, the man had his own gold mine. Now, I, I, I don't have a gold mine. I don't have any gold. The man had a gold mine. All right, um, He was king of all. Joseph of Arimathea, the man who takes Jesus' body and buries it. He was a very, very rich man. The tomb that he had that's described in the Bible was the tomb of the absolute rich elite. They've, there are only four or five of these tombs in all of Jerusalem. So he's in the top four or five richest people in the city. Um, Lydia, who Paul starts plants a church in her house. It's that big. Um, she's a seller of, of purple linen, which was a very, very rare color. This was very, very expensive. She, you know, she's the equivalent of owning a Nordstrom's or something like that. I mean, she's got the nicest clothes in town, and she sells those. Philemon, we have a whole book of the Bible called Philemon. 
And this man is rich. There's rich people in the Bible. Christians who are rich in the Bible. Paul talks about, I know what it's like to have plenty. But then he says, I know what it's like to have nothing. He was both. At one point, he was the religious elite. He was the guy on TV. And then he's being beaten and he's actually thrown into a trash heap at one point. They think he's dead. He's been beaten so bad he's just cast out where they threw the trash. That's how they buried him. He lived through it. That's kind of the scary part. You know what he says about all that? He learned to be content. And why could he be content having the riches or having nothing? It's because he had Jesus. And he had Jesus, well, for a little bit when he was rich. But he was staying in folks like Lydia's houses. I mean, he was staying in the nice places. He knew he had Jesus. And when he was at the low, he had Jesus. The point here is that Christians, we don't play by the same rules of life. It's not who who dies with the most toys wins. It's he who gives his life up. It's Jesus. Paul said it this way. To live, that's Jesus. That's Christ. To die, oh, that's even better. That is the Christian life. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, just get ready. It's going to be ugly. He says, it's, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. You will be satisfied. So, that's the explanation. Let's get to number two. Troubles will come for the Christian. Troubles will come for the Christian. I told you this part was going to be short. It will. We're going to face it. And it doesn't matter if it's cancer, the death of a spouse, the death of a parent, the death of a child, heaven forbid. Job loss. Struggling to get a job. Being in that place where it seems like no matter how hard you work and what you do, you just can't get there. It's coming. But then there are spiritual troubles on top of that. Think of a man. His name's Ilhim. I got to meet him last year. Um, Ilhim breaks my heart. He's not a Christian yet. He, he wears a ring. It looks kind of like he, he wears it like a wedding ring. Um, he's disabled. Um, to his knowledge, he'll never get married in that culture. It'd be very rare with him being disabled. But he, he wears a ring, and it, and it has a Muslim symbol on it. And I talked to him, and I, I said, why do you wear that ring? And he said, it's all I have left. He can't walk. He can't, because of their culture, he can't get a job. That's all I have left. And that's that connection to, to his historical heritage and his family. And he cannot take off that ring that symbolizes that historical... He's not a practicing Muslim, but he said, I at least have that. It's something that I can kind of tie it to. And what Jesus says is, that one last thing you're holding, take it off. It's worth the suffering. It's worth the suffering. 
Bible has this beautiful verse. Um, it's been a verse I've gone to for comfort for so many years. It's in the Psalms. And God says, and the psalmist says it's David, He holds my tears in His bottle. It, it doesn't say He stops the tears. It says... Your tears are so precious. Your suffering, whatever it is, is so precious to Him. Those tears that you cry, He's got a bottle for them. Jesus doesn't waste suffering. He uses it. I want you to think back to the time in your life when you were growing the most spiritually. And odds are, it's a time you were suffering. I'm not saying suffering is good. Please don't hear that. Because we are, we're Christians and we, one of the things we talked about um, on Father's Day and Mother's Day, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm not trying to make light of it. But suffering for the Christian usually means drawing closer to Christ. I had someone tell me in a hard time in life, don't jump ship. Don't jump ship. It may be hard. And there may not seem like any way out. Don't jump ship. Because Jesus says it right here. Blessed are you when you weep now. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when you are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. And all of that comes. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're going to suffer. So number two, troubles will come for the Christian. But number three, our response to trouble. Our response to trouble. We respond to persecution and suffering by looking to Jesus. Pastor in uh, Washington, D.C., Mark Devers, said it this way, commenting on this passage. Jesus calls his followers to take up their cross, not lay on the couch. So when the suffering comes, when the trouble comes, Christians don't retreat and just go into a little hole and hide. We take up our cross and we bear it and we learn to suffer well in Christ. We take advantage of the suffering and we pour out our heart to Him. We cry to Him. We shed out our anger to Him. And we find that He satisfies. Um, one of the books that you'll see there in, in your bulletin at the bottom um, talks about suffering and the sovereignty of God. It's a great book. I highly, highly recommend it to you. If you don't have money, you can download a copy of it free from the internet. Um, it's long. It would probably be better to get a physical copy of that one. Um, but if you don't have money, you can do that free. This book talks about that when we are in that deepest moment of suffering, Christ becomes the most satisfying thing because there's no distraction. We see Him purely because He's taken everything else away. And that moment which seems the lowest becomes a moment of satisfaction in Christ. So Christian suffer well. We take up the cross and we walk 
with Christ. We find our joy and our satisfaction in Him, not in the things of the world. Last thing. This is the last implication. Number four. There's a false gospel of health, wealth, and carefree living. There's a false gospel of health, wealth, and carefree living. One of the worst things to come out of the last 50 years is this false doctrine that if you get saved and you pray and you do this or you say this magic incantation because that's how they treat the prayers of Jesus, you'll get healthy, you'll be healed of any disease, you'll get all the money, you are to be wealthy and God wants you to just be rich and happy and content. I don't read that in the scripture. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and they exclude you, and they revile you, and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And when we have TV preachers like Kenneth Copeland, who has an estate of $760 million, Benny Hinn with an estate of $42 million, Joel Osteen with an estate of $40 million, Creepo Dollar, $27 million, T.D. Jakes, $18 million. I know his limo driver. The man has six limos, different one for every day of the week, except Sundays, he drives himself. This is a false gospel from the pit of hell. To say that God just wants to give you everything you want and just say these magic words and you're going to get it. And you just got to believe. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus saves souls and He loves you so, so much that He gave Himself. He suffered. Jesus suffered. When we come to understanding the gospel, we come to Paul, and as he looks back, he says, I count it all joy that I get to partake in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, this little bit that I'm going through, and by the way, Paul's little bit was being shipwrecked twice, beaten to death twice. He ends up being beheaded. This little bit, I get to get a little taste of what it was like for Jesus. And I'm happy about that. That's Paul's attitude in this. This is incredible. And so rather than the preaching that God wants just everything to be happy and rosy and smelling good and you to be rich. That is false. Does God heal? Absolutely. Did he heal Paul? No. Paul said he prayed seven times. I'm assuming that's seven periods of time, not just seven little one-sentence prayers. For God to heal something, he called it a thorn in his side. I mean, we assume it was you know, something going on in this. Joe said a couple weeks ago, I think Paul had diverticulitis. Um, he said, it felt like a thorn in my side. Um, Paul prays for this. He says seven periods. The answer to the prayer was, my grace is enough for you. So I want to end with a little story. 
story of Adoniram Judson, and you'll see his, one of his biographies. This is really short. It's like a 45-page biography. You can get download it free. They don't even make it in a book. It's so short. I really encourage you to read this. Um, there's a couple other biographies by um, John Piper, famous missionaries. But Adoniram Judson was a missionary. Took his family. Moved to the foreign field. He buried two wives. He buried seven children. He got to such a state that he dug his own grave and laid in it, praying for God to just kill him. He was just done. That went on for almost a month. More than I can imagine. But God in that suffering brought Adoniram to the end of Adoniram. He got up, quite literally, out of the grave he dug and began to preach the gospel again. And the people around him saw, who is this nut? Everybody he's married to dies. All his kids die. He, why is he still here? People began to believe the gospel because they saw Adoniram suffer in Christ. And, and though he had extreme lows, I mean, there's, there's no way the man would not, we have not classified him as clinically depressed. Um, I mean, he, he, he needed help from some medicines or whatever it was that, that he had issues. But God brought him out of that. And he didn't take any of this suffering away. But he used this man in his suffering, to reach thousands with the gospel. His life works, most of them are not in English, they're in the foreign language in which he works, are incredible in number. He was one of the most fruitful missionaries our world has ever known. He Happy 4th of July. I don't know how else to end it. I know some of you are suffering today. Find satisfaction in Christ. Don't waste the suffering. Don't jump ship. Stay the course. Find your satisfaction in Jesus. As we come to the Lord's table, our deacons are going to come down few of our other men. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And here's what this means. It's, it's a visual picture of a spiritual reality. So this, this picture is bread, the cup, juice. It's a picture of Christ's body and Christ's blood. One of the things that Jesus said while he was ministry is, if you do not eat and drink meat, he was, he was referring somewhat to the Lord's Supper, but more the literal spiritual reality of if you do not take the body of Christ into you and His blood, you do not trust Him and repent, you won't be saved. You have no part of me is the way He said it. And so today as we come to this, this physical representation of a spiritual reality, what we're going to do is respond in faith to Christ. We respond saying, I trust you, Christ. I trust you in my suffering.
I trust you in the heart. I trust you in the rejection. I trust you as I walk without that friend who will have nothing to do with me because I say what the Bible says. I trust you in this, God. I trust you. I turn from my sins and my ways. I turn from all those things. That's what repent means. I trust you, Christ. And if you've done that, if you've trusted Christ and you've become a believer, a Christian, we welcome you to this table. We, we ask that you be a, a member of a local church in good standing with, with baptism and all that. And finally, we ask something that Paul's taught us to do. That you repent of any sin. And if you have a quarrel with someone in this room, particularly our church members is who I'm talking to here, you go to them. You repent before them. You get it right before you take this. So if you need to move, all these men are serving it, do that. That's a very, very spiritual thing. That's not a distraction. But for the rest of us, we take this time and we just som- somberly reflect. Some of you may need to cry. Some of you may need to weep. That's okay. That's what this time's for. But we weep in faith in the body and blood of Christ. If you're not a believer, or you're in known sin, that you're not repentant of, we, we just ask that you let this, this cup and this juice pass by you. And just out of respect for Christ and who this symbolizes. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are good and gracious and kind. And this is a heavy sermon and a heavy topic and a heavy thing on our hearts. But Lord, I pray for those here. Lord, I don't know who they are who are truly suffering right now, that you would just bring them comfort, that you are there, that this is not meaningless, this is not purposeless, you are faithful, God. Lord, for the rest of us who who may not be suffering now, but will be soon, just because of how life goes, Lord, may we stay the course, may we not jump ship, Jesus, may we trust you, your body, your blood shed for us. Jesus, your name we pray.